All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. We've got a great show for you today. This one's a little bit different. We were invited by the Family Foundation of Virginia to go and speak to students as part of their Worldview Equip series. So this was a chance for high school students, college students to come and ask questions about the issues that they're confronted with so that we can equip them with the arguments that they need to advocate for the principles they believe in. And it was a wide range of topics, everything from government policy, economics, transgenderism. I mean, you name it, they had questions on it and we had a great time dialoguing with these students. So enjoy the show. Well, no, thank you guys. Thank you to the Family Foundation for having me. I appreciate that you are going through a course on worldview right now. I wish it's a course that more people would go through, especially people that end up running for elected office. You would be shocked at the number of people that serve in positions of power, making decisions on things that affect the lives of millions of people that really have no concept of what they believe at a fundamental level. And so the fact that you guys are actually asking those important questions um, is really important. Like, I can't emphasize that, that part enough. It's, it's significantly important to understand the foundation of why you believe what you believe. Um, one of the quotes I really like from C.S. Lewis where when he was talking about his Christianity and he was saying that I don't simply believe in, uh, you know, or he was talking about how he believes in Christ like he believes in the Son, not just because he sees it, but through it he sees everything else. And so understanding the foundational roots of what you believe, why you believe it is critical because that will then inform every other decision that you have to make within life. And obviously when you're in a position in politics, it affects the way you look at policy. And so here's what I want to do. Um, and this is kind of a, kind of a variation of, of some other talks I've given before. So I'll just talk a little bit about what I like to call the, the worldview discussion and the concept of presuppositionalism. Um, which, if you think that sounds cool and intelligent, it is, and I didn't come up with it. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's really important with respect to how you engage with other people. How do you actually share ideas? Because one of the biggest problems that we have right now is anytime we talk about anything, there's the threat of offense. And offense is never used as, gosh, I'm offended by that. I should probably think more about why that offends me and then understand and then be able to give an explanation for why there may be offense associated with that and what potential discussions could we have to alleviate that or address the sort of problems that caused the offense in the first place? No, 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 that's not the conversation that happens. It's I'm offended, shut up, right? That's, that's generally how that goes. And because I'm offended, you know, you don't have a right to say anything else, you don't have a right to have an opinion, or because you fall into a particular group, 
right? It's, it's the, the victim categorization on everything. And you get this a lot with critical theory and, and things like that. Um, so understanding what your worldview is, how to properly discuss with other people, I want to go into that. And then I want to take questions. So the, the most difficult questions that you find about your faith, about politics, about just sociology, whatever it is, ask me those questions. Because if you don't, I'm going to ask you questions, and I'm going to force you to defend what it is you believe, and I'm not going to be nice about it. I actually did a, a whole series like this. I'm about to do another one with about 200 college students. And it, it's interesting because on the flyer, it just says Fight Club with Delegate Nick Freitas. Right? All the other breakout sessions have a description of what they're doing. Mine just says, in fact, they tried to change mine. They're like, well, we'd like to call it a persuasion. I'm like, okay, cool. You can call it that. I won't do it. Well, well what, what will it take it for you to do it? You have to put delegate, fight club with delegate Nick Freitas. They're like, what if someone asks us about it? I said, easy. You tell them. Nobody talks about fight club. <laughs> right? You just show up, and we'll see what happens. Right? So... And, and the whole concept with that is this idea of putting you in a position, and this is, this is the environment you want that position, where you're forced to defend what it is you believe. This is sparring. Because out there, that's real. And if you're not practicing the fight, if you're not practicing the discussion, if you're not practicing the argument in a safe environment, you're not going to be prepared the first time you get hit when you go out there. And I'm telling you right now, you guys are inheriting a world that I didn't even think was possible 10, 15 years ago. The sort of things you're having to defend, I never dreamed of having to defend. And so it's become even more important that you feel prepared because it used to be that you could defend a, a controversial topic, but both people understood that, okay, this is a controversial topic and we're going to go at each other and whatnot, but then we're going to, we can still part as friends. That's not the world anymore. We are increasingly getting into a situation where if you don't agree with me, that makes you a bad, evil person. And there are social, economic, and professional consequences to be paid for not believing the right thing. And so whereas before, when I would defend something at your age, there might be mild inconvenience or uh, being uncomfortable in the process. For you, there's going to be actual consequences. You could actually be running into a world within your lifetime where you see actual persecution. And I'm not talking about the sort of persecution right now that people on the right of the church complain about, which bears no resemblance to the sort of persecution that people, Christians, and others are dealing with all over the world. I'm talking about significant persecution. And there's a, there's a very interesting discussion that Jordan Peterson gives, who, by the way, is an agnostic. But Jordan Peterson has a class, and he's teaching psychology. He, he likes to tell people, he goes, I'm willing to believe that most of you think that if you were growing up in 1930s Germany, you would have been the one standing up to the Nazis, hiding Jewish children in your basement. He goes, the first part of this class is to teach you that no, you wouldn't have. You would have gone along with it. You would have gone along with it with the next pressure. The second part of this class is to teach you how to not be that person. And so I'm, I'm adamant about this because it, it really does start off with the intellectual component. 
It really starts off with having that deep moral conviction and understanding that whether, especially with your faith, your faith is not just an intellectual conviction. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to understand that. The next part is, is understanding that if something is correct and it is right and it is true, then it is worth standing for, it is worth fighting for, even if you're the last one to do it, even if it costs you something to do it. And we have been overwhelmingly spoiled in the United States because we do live in relative freedom and prosperity compared to the rest of the world and certainly compared with world history. As much as people want to talk about all the bad things that has happened in the United States, and there are plenty of things to talk about, one of the questions that I like to turn back on people is I like to ask them, compared to what? Because if you're comparing it to an ideal, yes, everything falls short of the ideal. And that doesn't mean the ideal is not worth fighting for, but everything falls short of it within human history. But if you're comparing it to what's gone on in the rest of the world, we've got it pretty good here. No matter who you are, we've got it pretty good here. But as we start to see the cultural shift that all of us are witnessing within the United States, you could say that a shared worldview that most people in the United States used to appreciate, the idea that there was such a thing as objective truth, there was such a thing as objective morality, we might have disagreements, but ultimately there was something that we were all accountable to, and that was the truth. And that has slowly and steadily been replaced with things like postmodernism, deconstructionism, critical theory, where now all of a sudden there is no objective truth. There is no objective moral reality. There is oppressors and there is oppressed, and everything falls within the realm of class, race, sexual orientation, or sex itself. And those things determine for you what is right and what is wrong. There is no objective standard that you can appeal to. And the job of your generation is going to be fight against that and fight for the idea that there is such a thing as truth. And truth, far from being merely something that constricts, is actually a liberating concept. All right, so I'll get off my soapbox here, at least for a moment. Um, what I want to do right now is I want to take, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, let me back up one more thing. Presuppositionalism, because I, I promised you I was going to talk about that. So I don't want to jump into questions without actually telling you the, the method of engagement. So. Any of you ever heard of Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson, any of those Christian apologists? Okay. So in the Christian apologetic method, you have what you sometimes refer to as evidentiary apologetics, right? Using the inductive method to stack up evidence to determine whether or not you think God exists, or there's objective morality or things like that. The presuppositional method really is focused around this idea that every single worldview, every single one, whether you call yourself an atheist, a Christian, a Muslim, an agnostic, whatever it is, every single worldview is ultimately predicated on faith at its starting point. Now, if you're agnostic or atheist, they'll, com they'll combat that. They'll say, well, no, that's not right. I just rely on reason. Do you have faith in reason? Okay, yeah. Why do you have faith in reason? Well, because I can see it. Oh, so you have faith in your senses. Do you have... Well, no, it's, it's induction. Oh, so you have faith in induction, right? It doesn't matter where you go with this. Every starting point of a worldview relies on faith. And anybody that tells you that their worldview does not rely on faith is betraying something, right? They're, they're, they're cheating a little bit. Because even if they say they only rely on reason or they only rely on logic or they only rely on their senses, there's still, there's still an element of faith in that thing which they're relying upon in order to interpret everything else in reality. And so the question is, 
as Bonson always brings up, is when you look at that, that fundamental starting point of your worldview, what provides the necessary preconditions of intelligibility for everything else, right? Does that starting point provide you a mechanism to actually make sense of reality? And I know this sounds kind of uber intellectual. It's not. It's, it's really basic if you think about it. Right? All of us, when you're interpreting what's going on from what you chose to wear this morning to showing up here to listening to me to what you're going to do tomorrow to what you're going to eat for lunch, all of that requires you being able to use your senses, reason, logic in order to come to rational conclusions about what you're going to do and what you believe. So when you look at that foundational point of your worldview, does it provide the necessary preconditions to be able to do everything else? Does it actually provide a framework where you can explain not only the basic things that you're going to do throughout your life, but the fundamental questions of meaning, purpose, you know, why I'm here, what I'm doing. And I will tell you completely unapologetically, I believe Christianity provides that. Now, when you go and you talk to people about these things, a lot of times when you get into discussions, there's this tendency to do this thing where it's like, okay, you're going to leave, we got three islands, you're on one island over here. That's your Christian. That's your conservative. That's your whatever. And then you got this island over here, right? Maybe it's atheism. Maybe it's agnosticism, whatever. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the island in the middle where logic is at. And that's where we're going to debate all these things to see which worldview stacks up. That is a fundamentally flawed way of looking at the nature of the debate. Because the first question you should ask somebody is, well, how do you even get to logic in the first place? What in your world do you actually provides the necessary preconditions for logic? Because everything in the world is nothing but time plus chance plus matter. Well, then why do we have any sort of assurance that logic is going to work? Right? So that's, a, that's an example of a presuppositional question that gets someone to open up within assumptions about their own worldview. And this applies to a lot of things. I'm going to give you one example of it, and then I'm going to move on to your questions. How many of you have heard the argument, my body, my choice? Everybody has heard that argument, right? It's, it's one of the most common ones that you hear against the pro-life movement. In fact, as someone like me that has a very liberty-oriented streak with the way I look at government, I actually break with some of my conservatives on certain issues from time to time, but I'm adamantly pro-life, and I'll explain why in a moment. They'll, they'll either get that argument where it's my body, my choice. I should be able to make my choice. How dare anyone tell me what to do with my body? And you'll, you'll see that argument being made by the left. You'll see that argument being made sometimes by libertarians. So here's the question. Before we get into the, well, wait, but the baby's also a body. Or, but, but wait, you're still taking in a, a human life. Before we get into any of that, the question I like to ask when somebody says my body, my choice is, why does that matter? And you get this offended look, like, what do you mean, why does that matter? Of course that matters. Okay, yeah, I understand that, of course that matters. What I want you to do is explain why it is your body. And if it is, why should it be your choice? I know why I think what I think. I want to know why you think what you think. I want to understand what are your presuppositions you have taken into that statement when you make it in support of a pro-choice argument. Are you saying that you have ownership of your body? If you have ownership of your body, then presumably you also have responsibility for your actions. Are you saying that your body has inherent worth simply because it exists? Well, that's a presupposition as well, right? 
You haven't proven anything when you say my body, my choice. You're carrying that assumption into the argument. And the two biggest assumptions you're carrying is that you have ownership and responsibility of your body and its actions, and that your body has inherent value and worth. And therefore, somebody else should not come in and compel you to do something with your body that you don't want. Now, if you believe in those two presuppositions, here's the question. Who does it apply to? Does it just apply to you? Is it literally my body, your body, your choice? Or does that apply to anybody? Because if it applies to anybody, well, now there's some other assumptions we have to take into effect, right? There's other ideas we have to take into account. Because if everybody's body has inherent value and everybody is responsible for their actions, well, then when we look at the decision with respect to abortion, then we have to say at least in 97% of cases, what happened was is two people who own and have responsibility over their bodies made a conscientious decision to engage in an activity that they know could bring about another body, which they've already acknowledged has inherent value. And now they're saying that that body should not have value because it's infringing on what somebody else wants to do over here. But you've already destroyed your own argument. The moment you said, my body, my choice, you brought certain assumptions to that argument that make it impossible for you to say that it is perfectly justifiable to destroy another innocent human life. That's what it means to take a presuppositional approach to a question. And so many times where I see people that generally believe what we do get in trouble on these discussions is that we just assume that we all at least have some basic commitment to truth or objective morality. And we end up talking around each other. And we end up getting mad at each other. If you can first take a step back and ask the question, why do you think that way? Or if what you just said is true, doesn't that mean that this is also true? If you can open them up within their own presuppositions, you will have a much more productive conversation. Because one of the things I have learned the hard way is that if you were simply having a discussion to win an argument, that's pride. And I do not see a lot of good things happening as a result of pride. I was just listening to a sermon the other day, and they said something truly profound. I thought it was very profound. They said, if, in your, if your quest for justice is fueled by bitterness and hatred, that even if you achieve justice, you will be left with bitterness and hatred. If your quest for justice is fueled by love and compassion, then when you achieve it, you will still have love and compassion. It's one of the other things that I really want to impress upon you today. If this is all about proving to other people how much smarter you are than they are, you're not fulfilling a biblical mandate, you're not actually achieving anything that's truly useful. It has to be about more than that. You have to actually care about the person that you disagree with. First Peter says it best, right? 3.15. First sanctify Christ in your hearts and always be prepared to give a response for the hope that is in you, but to do so with gentleness and respect. And I will be the first to tell you that there are many times where I have a lot of difficulty with the gentleness and respect part. I mean, the environment I grew up in was largely military-oriented. We were hard on each other. We were overly sarcastic. 
It, it's kind of, and I'm not saying that that's always bad, but I, I can tell in my own life there's been times where I have an opportunity to have a discussion with someone, and as my wife sometimes looks at me, and Tina will say, she goes, was your intention to make someone aware of a good idea, or to demonstrate Christ's love in a particular situation, or was it to completely intellectually destroy them? To which I look back at her and be like, can it be both? <laughs> and, uh, and chances are it, it can't. Most times it can't be. Okay, so as you guys think about the various questions you want to ask, and again, if you don't ask me questions, I'm going to start asking them back, and that's when it's going to get crazy. All right? Because I want you to have that opportunity to, to do the sparring, to go back and forth, okay? But as you're thinking about that, that's what I want you to be, that's what I want you to be considering. How do I have a productive conversation with somebody, not just how do I win a debate? Because this is the last thought I'll leave you with before we get to that. One of the things I've found, and one of the, I won't get into all the details, but there was, a, there was a time where I was debating with somebody about the existence of God. And he started to go off on this tangent where he said, well, do you believe that if you commit suicide, you go to hell? And I responded with, that is a red herring fallacy argument that has nothing to do with either the existence or non-existence of God. And so why don't you stay on topic? Now, I was technically correct. I was also a prideful fool in that moment. I was so concerned with demonstrating to him how smart I was that I never thought to ask the question, why did you ask me that? Because if I had, that would have given me the insight into what he was dealing with in his own life, the struggles that he was going through, the sense of abandonment that he felt, the sense of complete disillusionment, the sense of frustration that he had with the church and with faith in general. I could have had that conversation and actually gotten to something that might have been able to provide some sort of healing, but I was too concerned with being the smartest guy in the room. Don't do that. You will be shocked at the number of times that there is a very, very thin intellectual veneer covering up a mountain of pain and personal suffering. And your job is to never marginalize the suffering, experience, or pain someone else has gotten through. It's to understand it so you can have the conversation about what is true because if you really believe that truth and love and compassion is ultimately what brings healing and reconciliation, then you are going to have to wade through some very, very difficult waters at time. And you have to be open to asking those questions, to following the leading through the conversation in order to know what to ask. All right, I'll stop there. So, all right, start firing away questions. Yes? So, um, I'm also in the Army. Yeah. And we, with the new like, PT test that's just been passed, it's equated the requirements for men and women. Mm -hmm. um, so we have the exact same standards. Even though there's complete scientific evidence that, that, that men are stronger mm -hmm. on a like, regular basis. So how do you can, like, explain to someone that is provided with facts and they can see scientific evidence that something is true, but they still choose not to? 
So there's a certain, there was actually a really interesting study done on the, on the human capacity for self-deception. And if you look at this from a worldview component, there are certain views that we have that are, we, we view as essential to our identity and who we are. We get genuine purpose, meaning, and community from them. And we hold on to those incredibly tightly. Then there's other views that go beyond that that we're, we still might be committed to or think they're true, but we're not as committed or we can be convinced otherwise. Right? So convincing me to walk away from my faith is impossible because it's a relationship. Convincing me that my wife does not exist right, is, is impossible because we have a relationship. Um, convincing me that the laws of logic don't work is difficult because I, I, they're so critical to how I conduct life on a day-to-day -day basis. Convincing me that the Dodgers lost to the Giants the other night. I don't like that truth. <laughs> but you can present evidence to demonstrate to me because, one, it is the truth. And two, it's not like I have some overwhelming commitment to that. There's no big threat to my, my identity, my community, meaning or purpose by that being true. It's, it's frustrating. I don't like it. When you find yourself in a situation where you have given a perfectly logical, rational explanation for something, you've provided empirical evidence to support your logical argument, and people are still refusing to accept it, there's usually something else at work. There's usually a deep emotional commitment to a certain way of thinking or, or sometimes um, in conjunction with, a deep-seated fear with respect to not believing something. And I think that, again, the reason why I talk about the whole identity, purpose, and community. If someone identifies a certain way, has a community that encourages that particular identity, and they get purpose from that identity and community, and now you're presenting evidence which potentially tears that down, you're going to get a lot of resistance. And it's going to be frustrating because we all generally have this commitment. One of the commitments I have, again, is like to the truth of Scripture. So when my child comes to me, who I have authority over, who I'm responsible for protecting and guiding, and they tell me, Daddy, you're wrong and this is why, but they can point to an objective truth that they know both of us are committed to, it's still difficult sometimes to admit to your kid that, yeah, you're right and I'm wrong. So part of what we have to be able to demonstrate in a conversation like this is we have to understand what is going on behind just the, the basic argument that is taking place. If you, have, if you have, in fact, now sometimes I will tell you this, I've seen people make arguments before where they just think it was brilliant and I'm looking there going, oh my gosh. Please never say that out loud again. <laughs> right, so the first thing to do is to go back and check your own argument, your own data. Right, and then the two things I always shoot for is it's gotta be logically consistent and empirical evidence to back it up, right? Whenever possible. Some things you can't necessarily empirically prove or prove through experimental science, but that doesn't mean you can't demonstrate the truth of something through logic and rational thinking. Okay, but if you've, if you've done all that and you truly have done a good job and you've properly, the next question is, have you properly listened to the argument they're making? Because a lot of times we listen with the intent to respond, 
not with the intent to understand. I'm listening just enough to be able to respond to whatever bad argument you made. But I'm not giving myself any time to truly digest why it was you said what you did or what argument you brought to the table. Because that is going to provide you insight into the deeper motivations behind why they want to believe something. Right? Generally not hard to get somebody to, again, if, if, I, if you were doing a math equation right now and it came to the wrong equation, first of all, I would not be the person to ask to correct it. But, and I showed you, well, no, no, it's actually this. You'd be like, oh, okay, good. Why? Because what you wanted was the correct answer. You didn't have any commitment that the answer be 42 as opposed to 47. You just wanted the correct answer. When a lot of these discussions, this is not just purely a discussion about the correct answer. There's a whole bunch of emotional and psychological baggage that goes with the implications if you're wrong. And so being sensitive to that when you engage in the conversation is really important. Um, another thing that I think is important, so you know, I've, I've, I've been to ranger school, I've got my ranger tab, I've got my special forces tab, you know, all, all that stuff. I remember the first time a ranger went through ranger school, or a woman, uh, excuse me, a woman went through ranger school and graduated. First thing I did was call up my buddy, who was the sergeant major at Ranger Training Brigade. And I just said, I, I just want to know, because there's been a lot of discussion, everybody's got an opinion on it. Here's what I want to know. Were the standards adjusted in order to make sure they passed? And Sergeant Major Arnold, Nick, no, they were not. Then welcome to the club. That's the other thing we need to understand on the other side of this is that sometimes we have a commitment to a certain outcome. And when somebody breaks that stereotype and accomplishes something, all of a sudden we become protective of an institution that we thought belonged to us. And now we're worried on how, that, how is that institution now changing? And yes, when somebody is fundamentally changing, like again, if they had changed the standards, well now, she didn't achieve her ranger tab. She achieved a ranger tab because you changed the standards. But that's not what she did. She operated under the same standards with biological um, challenges that her male counterparts didn't face, and she graduated anyway. And if my response to that is, well, I want to protect my interpretation of what a ranger tab should look like, then now I'm the one doing a disservice, not just to the institution. I'm doing a disservice to her. Now I'm not the one committed to truth anymore. And that's the other thing that we have to be very, very careful on, is making sure that, yes, if we're saying that a standard should be applied equally, that makes sense. But we should also not be threatened when somebody does achieve a standard and achieves a, a, a huge milestone. And so, and that, that's the other part that I think that there's some pushback on, some legitimate pushback against maybe our side on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, with that, the specific situation that I was talking about and like how there's been lowered standards that men now have to reach because there was enough complaints that women thought that there should be an equal standard, mm -hmm. but the percentage of women that could reach that male standard were so low that the army lowered it so it would be much more equal. Yeah. And especially in like my community, they've been just like normal army talk talking about like, oh, why is this happening, blah, blah, And I just want to know like when we're presented with issues like that, not in just the army, but in, us, in like a, a 
more nationally political sense. Yeah. And there's a very obvious like scientific truth versus something that's like opinion and emotion like based on emotion. The way that the country's moving right now is like emotions are cared about a lot more than just facts. Yeah, narrative has become incredibly important. And so how do we combat that without being viewed as, oh, you're just insensitive and the enemy? Well, with some people, you won't be able to do that. They're going to come to that conclusion because they've created an intellectual, they've created an intellectual infrastructure where that is the conclusion they come to. If you look at the whole idea of critical theory, and right now when you say critical theory, everyone thinks critical race theory. That's not the only critical theory. Critical theory used to be more associated with uh, Marxism and, and class warfare and economic outcomes. And then you had critical theory with respect to theology. And now we're seeing critical race theory. But it, it, a, common, a common theme within critical theory is a rejection of the sort of linear thinking that you see typically associated with the laws of logic, scientific method, and they put more emphasis on narrative. And this is kind of a, a postmodernist construction, right? It's this idea that there is no objective truth, there's just perspective. But then within critical theory, they've placed people in certain categories of victimization or oppressor versus oppressed. So if you're an oppressor, it doesn't matter what you say. If you're an oppressed class, then you're the good guy. That, that's it. And so if you're, if you're debating with someone that is committed to that, the best thing that you can do is ask questions. You can engage in logic, what we call reductio ad absurdum, reducing the argument to absurdity. Now, you don't want to do that necessarily in a, in a mean way. You just want to ask basic questions. Like, so for instance, when we talk about standards within the military, so why does the military exist? Right? Like that's the first question that we should be asking. Why does the military exist? The military, the military is an arm of the government in order to provide a deterrent effect to anybody that would threaten us or our way of life and to engage in acts of violence in order to mitigate that threat. That's why the military exists. So one, a key question a lot of times in these discussions, we're talking about standards, right? Before you even get to, should the push-ups be this amount or this amount? Why does the military exist? <coughs> What do we do within the military? Should there be a particular standard for some MOSs and not other MOSs? For instance, if you're going into the military to be the judge advocate, to be judge advocate general, a lawyer, should you have to pass the same physical standards if you're going in to be an infantryman? Well, that's a discussion we can have. Another question is, is that who benefits from lowering the standards? What benefit have we, have we actually achieved? Because if now you can get in or you can join a particular unit, but you're no longer in a situation where you can actually effectively defend yourself or conduct operations in a dangerous environment where you can be killed, did we do you a favor? Were, were we compassionate to you by putting you in a situation where you could not possibly defend yourself or others? Right. So a, a large part of the argument is that if, if we're concerned about the compassion side of it, which we should be, or the emotional component of it, well, here's my question. We, conservatives, sometimes we get, in this, we get in this trip where it's like, well, that's an emotional argument. Okay, is it true or not? Right? That's, whether, whether it's an intellectual argument or a heady argument or an emotional argument is less valuable to me with respect to understanding what's going on than whether or not the argument presented is true or not. Is it true? 
That's the question that we should be asking. The emotional reaction somebody has to a particular thing is an invitation to thought. And one of the things I really want to stress to people, and I think it would be very useful for you to stress when you're discussing this with other people, because a lot of times you will find people that are convinced of a particular policy decision because their intentions are good. And they haven't even bothered to think about the incentive structures it's going to create or the logical outworking of the policy that they're supporting. They just know that they have good intentions. The people that supported the policy have good intentions. They want the policy to have good outcomes. Poof, that's all that's required. But that's not compassion, that's moralizing. Compassion is when you have an emotional reaction to something, you actually dig into understanding fundamentally why you had that emotional reaction so that you can effectively address the problem. That's the logical step that's followed if you are genuinely concerned about compassion. Why do I have this reaction? Why do I have this emotion? What are the different underlying causes behind the event that took place that generated the emotion in the first place? How do we effectively address it in such a way that actually respects people's personal integrity, their rights and liberties? And then how do we craft, when appropriate, policy that will create the appropriate incentives to create the appropriate outcomes? But if you jump from, I have an emotional reaction to, I want this policy without actually understanding anything in between, you are not trying to solve someone's problem. The only problem you're trying to solve is your own angst. It's how you feel about something. And there's nothing quite so self-centered as the idea of imposing a solution on millions of people, not because it's actually going to achieve the desired end result, but because it makes you feel better in the moment about the situation you're trying to address. So let's not focus so much on whether or not an an argument is emotional or not emotional. Is it true or not true? Does it solve the things that you're claiming you want to solve? Does it address the issue you claim you want to address? Because that's where you find the common ground. If the idea is is that we want greater equal opportunity with respect to people in the service, we want more people to be able to come in and join the military and serve their country and do a good job. Great. If that's the goal, let's start the conversation there. What does it take to achieve that? Are are we really better off by lowering all these standards over here? Yes, you might get more of the numbers that you think you want, but is that, was that the goal? Just more numbers? Well, in that case, just throw out all the standards. So sometimes it's about, again, going back, not just dismissing something because it's an emotional argument, understanding the nature of the emotion, but then finding the point, where do you both agree? What is the end state? What I found, what I found often, not all the time, but often, is that there are very similar end states with respect to what people want. We want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. How we get there varies a great deal. All right, who's got another one for me? Yes, sir. Uh, kind of the thing I was saying you mentioned earlier, but people will be emotionally attached to an argument and then not want to necessarily hear what the uh, actual answer is to that, and instead we'll try to shut down the argument instead. Yeah. Um, so how do we, like, so what do we do in that situation? Do we still try to talk to them, or is the best thing to do just walk away from it, or is there another option? Well, I mean, I wouldn't recommend handcuffing them to a chair or nothing, but... Um, <laughs> So it depends. If someone wants to engage in a conversation, um, they'll make that evident on some level. 
If somebody just wants to yell at you, they'll usually make that very evident on some level. And if somebody doesn't want to talk at all, they'll walk away. The other thing that I would tell you to be careful of is the audience. A lot of times you get in a discussion with somebody and there's a lot of other people watching that discussion. And the real reason why you're there, you'll find out later, was because you said something that impacted somebody over here that you never actually talked to, but was watching how you answered questions or how you engaged. And they were also watching how the other person engaged. So being aware of your surroundings with respect to a debate or discussion that you're having is important because it might be that the people that are the most influenced by what you say are the people watching the discussion, not engaging in it. So when you can engage, even if someone is yelling in your face, there, to be perfectly honest, I like being in environments where I'm outnumbered five to one. And the reason why is because everyone watching that recognizes, wow, that dude's outnumbered five to one. That's interesting, right? They, they must have some you know, level of conviction with what they're saying if they're willing to go into a hostile environment and discuss it. The other thing I like is when someone gets really, really upset and angry and starts yelling, I like to get calm. Now, I, I will admit, sometimes I like to get calm because sometimes it makes them even more mad, right? But that's not the right motivation. <laughs> that's not the right motivation. But what it does is it demonstrates, hopefully, to the person you're discussing with, but at the very least, to everybody that's watching, that you're actually here to have dialogue. Right? You're not here to intimidate someone into not speaking. And there's people having natural sympathy toward that. So what I would say is that there, there, is, gonna, there is always a point where basically there's no, there's no utility to continuing the conversation either because they're not interested or they're walking away or, or nothing positive is, is really possible of happening out of it. But as much as it's within your control, you can always control your action in the dialogue, your action in the conversation. And one of the most productive things you can do is instead of constantly trying to get to your point or explain why they're wrong, ask questions. Why do you say that? Why do you believe that? Okay, if that's true, would this also be true? Would that apply in this particular circumstance? What about this? Because now what you're doing is, again, you're opening them up within their own presuppositions, but you're also listening to them because you want to get the answer. Presumably, you want to get the answer to the question you just asked. They're now more engaged because you're asking them questions. There, there's a tendency to look at the person answering the questions as the position of authority or the one controlling the conversation. It's actually not true if you do it right, but it, it will allow people to engage in dialogue sometimes a lot easier in, in, in circumstances where they otherwise wouldn't. If it's just you know, battleship, you, you lodge a salvo, then they lodge a salvo, right? That, it, it, that, that can break down really quickly. And, and by the way, when you ask the questions, ask a good question and don't, don't make the question something where you're like obviously setting them up or trying to make them look stupid, right? You, you guys know the difference, right? There's, you know, okay, that's, that's interesting. If you think that, would it also apply here? That's, that's a logical way to do it. But like, hey, moron, if you really think that, do you realize it would do that? That's not, you know, okay, now you're just being a jerk. Right? I know, I've done it. I've seen me do it. <laughs> so, yeah, to answer your question, there will be a time to go away. But again, always keep in mind, you're always in control of your actions. Right? We don't buy into that argument that it's not your fault or based off of how you look or how you were raised or your economic status that you don't have control of your actions. We don't buy into that. We, we buy into the idea that, no, I do have responsibility for what I do and how I behave. So keep in mind the person that you're talking, also the people that are, are watching.
Yes, sir. Yeah, our quest to win hearts and minds, how do we do so when the primary way information gets communicated these days is clickbait headlines, Twitter dunks, and two-minute news debates? So I'm not saying don't engage. I, I like to engage in any environment that I can engage in. So I have a podcast called Making the Argument. I have another show we do called uh, The Why Minutes. And I've had conservatives get mad at me like, I can't believe you're putting this out on Facebook. Like, I'm gonna compete in any medium that I can compete in. I'm also gonna understand that different mediums have different audiences and different reasons why people show up. Right, you, you almost gotta think of like some of those environments, whether it's the news or social media or you know, the difference between why someone watches Facebook or why someone's on Facebook versus why someone's on TikTok. Right, if, if I go to a pizza place, it's because I want pizza. It's not because I, I want dental work done. All right, so same thing when you go to these, when, when you are looking at the different venues or environments that you're going to be discussing in, understand why people came there in the first place. Because if you're just throwing all that out, well then don't be surprised when people aren't that interested in, in having a discussion with you. Here's the other big thing that I think is, is problematic, um, and, and this isn't, you could say this is for conservatives in general, but I, I think it's probably the most compelling condemnation of the Western church. And by compelling, I mean I think it actually has a mer merit to it. Um, when we're talking about winning hearts and minds, um, especially like when it comes to the policy realm, and I say, well, I don't think the government should do X, Y, or Z because that's an infringement on liberty or an infringement on property rights or an infringement on you know whatever. The response I most often get back is, well, if the government didn't do it, who would? Once upon a time, the church and the family and individuals in general as part of communities was the answer to that question. And somewhere along the line, we got the bright idea that if we just handed this all over to Caesar, we'd have a lot more money for stained glass windows and potlucks. Well, how's that worked out for us? One of the biggest problems that we have with winning hearts and minds is that we want to convince them through our words and our arguments of our way of thinking, and we spend very, very little time convincing them through our actions of our way of thinking. And so I would encourage you, as, as you look at a particular problem, and I, and I get into this issue, again, I, I have a very liberty-oriented view of government. So I have had people that share my faith, that in, in general share my political convictions, that will come up to me and say, well, we need to use the government to do this. We need to use the government. I mean, we should, be, we should be pushing for this in our schools, and we need a bill that's going to... So our, what, our primary way to solve problems now is to use government force and coercion to compel other people to do what we want? If that's your way to solve problems, we've already lost the argument. This is just a simple question of who's going to rule over us. It's no longer a question of what free people do in a free society to the betterment of themselves, their families, their community. So one of the greatest arguments that we could start making is actually engaging in a very real, in a very real sense to meet the needs that everyone else is trying to address through government power and control. I, I ran into church softball league. Had a pastor come up to me, and, and it was interesting because he, I, I really pretty, he thanked me for what I do in the General Assembly. And we got to talking, and their church, before COVID, realized that there was a medical need in their community, so they set up a free clinic. 
They realized that there was a dental need in their community, so they set up a dental clinic. They realized that there was an educational need, so they started doing that. They realized that there was a daycare need, so they started to do that. And I'm looking at him going, that's <laughs> like what I've done. I've taken some votes. I've given some speeches. I've tried to carry good legislation. But ultimately, that pastor and their congregation were showing people the love of Christ by meeting practical needs. So when that person asks, what is different about you? They have an answer. That's what we need more of. We need to actually meet the need. We need to demonstrate that we can meet the physical needs because a lot of the issues that are coming out from the left, they are talking about genuine needs. It's not like the problems don't exist. Now, some of the problems they talk about I don't think exist, but a lot of what they're talking about, they are actual physical needs. The question is, is who's going to meet them? They're committed to the idea that the way we meet them is through increased government power and control. Well, if we don't agree with that, our argument cannot exclusively be, no, that's not the way to do it. It has to be, and this is our way to do it, and our way works better, and this is why. Because ultimately, our way builds a genuine sense of community. And I, I explained this to somebody once. I said, you know, you probably assume, because of my current position, that I don't know what it's like to be poor or to struggle. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's very wrong. I know exactly what it's like to be working 60 hours a week and have my power turned off because I can't pay the bill. I know what it's like to see my wife cold in the winter because I couldn't pay the bill. I also know what it's like to have friends or family or members of a church come in in a moment of need and sacrifice something to help me. And that did not breed a sense of entitlement. It bred a sense of gratitude and community. And that is one of the biggest differences with respect to the way government addresses a problem versus the way free individuals address a problem. When it's some politician handing out other people's money telling you that you're owed all this, there's no gratitude, there's no sense of community. There's a power transaction. Elect me and I will steal from other people and give it to you. But when you actually know that somebody is giving something up in order to make sure that you could get through a tough time, not only do you feel a sense of gratitude, you feel a sense and an obligation to repay in the future. There's no substitute for that. If you really want community, if you really want compassion, that's how you get it. We don't get it by delegating our responsible to love thy neighbor to Caesar. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. You. Yes, sir. Um, so now the um, counties of Virginia have been dealing with the General Assembly's you know, school mandates of um, transgender bathrooms and all that stuff. Um, what's the right role of counties and like cities, like local governments, in their response? Because on one hand, they um, you know you're supposed to obey the state, but on another hand, these are moral issues that they're facing. So um, What's the line they draw like between obeying the state and the state's mandates and taking a stand for like moral convictions? Well, what's wrong with having a transgender bathroom? Um, it's not in the Bible. Like it's clear, it, the Bible clearly mandates that's wrong. God designed this for... The Bible know. clearly mandates that it's wrong to have transgender bathrooms? It doesn't strictly mandate that, but the general principles that transgenderism comes from principles that are contrary to the Bible because it's contrary 
to God's design for male and female. Well, yeah, but if God made them, then isn't that his problem? No, it's our problem because he told us one way to do it. And we're in... But if someone has a deep psychological conviction that their biological reality does not comport with their psychological reality, you're telling me that you think the best course of action for the state or for the government is to come in and to essentially isolate or make them feel abnormal with respect to the deep psychological conviction that they possess. The, um, so in dealing with them, we shouldn't um, make them... There's a way that Christians can respond to where they can treat them with love, but that love is, should be in such a way as to tell them about um, how to get out of that situation. Because um, anything like other than the design that God created for marriage is... Um, well, we're not talking about marriage. But transgender... Okay, so maybe you're not talking about marriage, but the issue of transgenderism and anything contrary to... God's design for man and woman still falls within that category. So um, while the state shouldn't treat them like badly, like bully them, there is a way to, um, as Christians, to like show them love by showing them how they can um, be free from that. So your fundamental argument here is that because the Bible has a particular moral code with respect to gender identity, therefore the state should use the coercive power of government in order to compel schools to prevent them from setting up bathroom arrangements which they think may be more compassionate towards students that identify as transgender. What I'm saying is local governments should not have to, local governments should be able to operate um, by their moral convictions and should be able to say that they are not going to set up so if Alexandria only wants to have transgender bathrooms, then they should be able to apply based off of their moral convictions? No. Um. So the localities that comport with your moral convictions should be able to make policy in accordance with their moral convictions, but not the counties that you don't like? I'm saying... Um, I totally did a bait and switch on you at this. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What is the fundamental question? Um, I think the fundamental question, like when it boils down to everything, mm -hmm. um, there are two different worldviews, and mm -hmm. those worldviews are competing. Mm -hmm. um, so on one hand, you'd have the biblical worldview of marriage, biblical mm -hmm. worldview of what a man is, what a woman is, versus the, um, I guess, Marxist or progressive idea or worldview where there is no really objective reality. <coughs> And so these issues are coming from those two fundamental worldviews like colliding. Yeah, but, but specifically with this issue. So I, I mean, there's multiple worldviews, right? There's literally can be as many worldviews as people. There's different political ideologies, right? The, the question I have, though, is what is the fundamental question here? Let me ask you this. Define transgender. Um, well, that has a lot of definitions. <laughs> We actually had, so we had a bill before the education committee and that had to do with, and they, they, one of the things they wanted to put in there was transgender policy. And one of our members said, can you define transgender? And the patron of the bill said, I'm going to leave that to Equality Virginia, which was the primary lobbyist supporting the bill. So he said, cool. 
Equality Virginia, can you define transgender? We're going to let the Department of Education <laughs> come up with that. Right? So before we even get in to this school board, that school board, because part of what I was doing was talking there in knots, right? Because if, it's, if you're saying that a local school board should be able to do what they want in accordance with their moral convictions, then if a local school board has the moral convictions that every student should be taught Marxism, well then, hey, you just said that, that should, they should be able to do it in accordance with their moral convictions. The fundamental question here with respect to transgender, and, and, and the reason why I made that statement, that typically speaking, when we're, when we're talking about something, and like you said, there, there can be multiple definitions. In fact, in some cases, they don't like to define it because now there's a concrete standard by which we can actually have a discussion. They don't want that. I, I had a, a colleague one, I had a bill for battered women's shelters. And I had a delegate tell me, well, everyone knows that sex and gender is fluid. And I'm like, wow, everyone knows that. So then literally none of us know what gender we are. Well, no, 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 we do. Not if it's fluid. It's fluid, you have no idea. Could be something different five seconds after you said this. But typically speaking, when we're talking about that, what we're saying is that someone has a deep psychological conviction that they are something other than what their biological reality says that they are. Right? So we associate sex and gender, and those terms have been used synonymously for centuries. But we associate those things with biology. That biology has always been what we've used to differentiate between male and female. Now, people have a wide variety of different sexual preferences and whatnot, and we can get to that debate later. But with respect to men and women, the way we have always defined this, the way we've always differentiated those terms has been based off of biology. So now what you're telling me is your biology does not comport to your psychological reality. Therefore, not only do you insist that reality adjusts to reflect your psychological conviction, you insist that the rest of us adapt our thinking to comport with your psychological reality. Do we do that for, what else do we do that for? I, like, I'm curious. I debated doing this on the floor <laughs> where I wanted to say, I identify as the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Delegate Fillercorn, hand me your gavel. <laughs> and if you don't, you're bigoted. Because how dare you question my deeply held psychological conviction? It is a core part of my identity that I'm the Speaker of the House of Delegates for Virginia. I know I haven't met any of the legal requirements, but my gosh, legal requirements can be adapted at a whim. Legal requirements are nowhere near, process requirements are nowhere near as fixed in reality as biology. And yet you've suggested that provided someone has it, not you, but you, they've suggested that if you have a deep psychological conviction, therefore the rest of us should alter appropriately. Well, if you can do that with something as like biology, well, then certainly we should be able to do it with processes. Or, or what about species? And, and people laugh at this like, no, I, I am following the arg argument to a logical conclusion. So that's the first problem, right, is what are we actually discussing? And, and what we were really saying is that you want a public institution to adapt its policies based off of the psychological reality that someone has that doesn't comport with physical reality. 
And if you're going to go down that path, don't think it just stops with gender. Why would it? So that's the larger implication from a public policy perspective. But can I, can I tell you something that I think goes even deeper than that with this issue and why I think we are making the wrong argument? I had a church group once ask me, like, what do you think about prayer in schools? I said, well, I believe in prayer without ceasing, but what you're asking me is you think you want organized state-ran prayer in a public institution, in a government school? Yeah. I said, you've already lost the debate. Because what, what could that prayer possibly mean? What could some generic prayer led by a government official that kids are now required on some capacity to participate in, what could that possibly mean? Here's the real question. Why is the government running all of our schools? <laughs> and and that, that question is far more fundamental to the overall debate that's going on here. When we look at education, who is primarily responsible for education? Is it the state? Is it the government? Is it parents? Now, all of us understand that the whole idea of specialization and diversification within the economy is predicated on the idea that we all don't do the same thing equally as well. And so I focus on the things that I do really well, and then I delegate certain responsibilities through interaction to other people. So if you're a really good teacher, it might be better for you to teach my kids than it would be for me to teach my kids math. It's literally better for anybody to teach my kids math other than me. So I might delegate that responsibility, but does that all of a sudden make the argument for now the government should come in and compel it through forced taxation and truancy law? Should the government now ultimately get to decide what the curriculum is? See, we're so busy having a debate about the bathroom. And I'm not slamming you, I'm just saying. We're so busy having a debate about the bathroom, we have forgotten the whole fundamental question here. Because here's a great solution. And John Fredericks and I had a, a big debate on this once on, on the air. And it was about bathroom issues. I said, I got a, a much easier solution for everyone. How about instead of the government administering all of our schools, how about dollars follow students? And if you would like to send your child to a school where they have those sorts of policies, you can. And if you would like to send your child to a different school that has different policies, you can. The moment we make the argument exclusively about which one of us is going to get the upper hand with respect to government power to compel by force someone to do something that we want, we have already lost the argument to the other side. Because that's their mechanism for solving problems. My mechanism for solving problems, and I believe it is a biblical method, starts first with the idea of you have inherent value as a human being, you have certain God-given rights for which it is my job as an elected official to protect them. But ultimately, you should be free to live your life the way you want, provided you don't infringe on the rights of liberties to, uh, of other people to do the same. But you must bear the consequences for your actions. And so on a lot of these questions, the thing I always fire back with is, yes, they are doing something through government policy I don't like. I don't think the response should automatically be, now let's do something to them they won't like, <laughs> right? What if we just said, we're going to remove the government from this particular conversation? We're not going to use force and coercion against anybody. You're going to make your decisions, I'm going to make my decisions, and we're both going to live with the consequences of those decisions. If you want to know what the chief reason why we have such a problem with civil discourse and politics, it's not just because of tone, 
It's not just because we assume bad things or assign bad intentions to people because we have policy disagreements. One of the chief problems is because the nature of political discourse has become, you and I have a disagreement, now we're gonna go run to our respective politicians to compel the other one by law to do what we want. And anytime the discussion descends into this idea of we're going to use force and the threat of violence against you, instead of letting you live the way you want, letting me live the way I want, provided we don't infringe on each other's rights and liberties, Anytime we resort to force, yeah, the stakes are going to get really, really high. And it's going to get very ugly very quickly, and we're seeing that right now. So, to your point, <laughs> um, I understand the frustration, but I think the fundamental answer is going to be something where we, we reintroduce this idea that parents are going to have different opinions with respect to the raising and education of their children. The trade-off I'm willing to accept, because we don't live in a world with solutions. You want a solution? His name's Jesus Christ. Everything else is a trade-off. We live in a world of trade-offs, and the trade-off I am happy to accept is this. Provided that you are not doing something that is like truly abusive to your child. If you want to raise your child in a school that teaches them that Karl Marx was a great guy, it is not my job to come in and use the force of government to compel you to do otherwise. But you don't get to use force to compel me to teach my kid Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Bastiat and Frederick Hayek. A lot of Austrians in there and one French guy. But <laughs> All right? Because I do have faith. I do have faith that when truth is allowed to compete in a free marketplace, it wins. But we have to be fighting for that free environment where it can compete, not one where we compel someone to do what we want because we happen to be the guys in charge of the guys with machine guns at the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, real quick. You had a question, and then I'll go back. Oh, my question was um, about, there was a church in my neighborhood that has been, they were meeting online until like February, and yeah. now they're meeting outside. Yeah. And the reverend's been locked out of his church. And like, they can't, can't get in. The diocese won't let them. This is in Virginia? Yes. Yeah. How, how can, what can the reverend do to fight fight back against that. He's been locked out of his church by who? Out of the diocese of... Oh. So. Man, I thought it was going to be a government official. I was like, oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have so much fun with this. Yeah. Uh. But they, can't, they aren't allowed to be inside. And he, I'm pretty sure he, the church has been recognized as like a conservative church, so he doesn't want to get in more trouble for pushing back. But how, what can he do to... Is there? I mean, it's a private organization, and private organizations have have you know a, a right to conduct business and come with their own processes and procedures within you know certain reason, right? They can't violate state and federal law on their processes, but they do have a right. And, and I don't want to. It would not be an appropriate place for the government to come in and tell the diocese that no, you're not allowed to do that. Um, the, the honest question that, that the reverend might want to ask and that his congregation might want to ask is, why are they doing this? Because I'm willing to bet they have a process where they can address this within their own church. Um, and they may want to do it that way. But that's probably going to be the best way to do it. Again, that's, that's a, a private organization which should be allowed to have its own um, you know, rules and jurisdiction over those rules. And then people can, people can do one of two things. They can either change the system from within or they can leave it for something else. Yeah. So it's kind of piggybacking off his question with like changes in the bathrooms at public schools. Yeah. Um, 
I got into like a debate with one of my friends about this because they felt that transgender bathrooms aren't going to hurt anything because mm-hmm. it's going to be more of an issue if transgender guys are able to go into just a girl's bathroom or transgender girls are able to go into a guy's bathroom and like vice that whole situation he was like if we just create a transgender bathroom and then keep the male and female bathroom then what's it hurting um, at all and my response was like piggybacking off a lot of psych- like psychological research that uh, supports the idea that if you play into the because prior to like 2010 like the um, or like the 2000s the like American Psy- um, Psycho- Psychiatric Association was gender dysphoria and until the like transgender community was like hey that really hurts my feelings enough they didn't change it and then once they like folded because they're like okay time to stop hurting feelings they changed it from gender dysphoria disorder to just a gender dysphoria and they're completely away from gender dysphoria in general and so like my argument back which i was more just asking like you if this was like just or like true is that allowing the transgender bathroom in general prior to adulthood is doing a disservice to a child's mental health because it's playing into something that for as long as like America's been around, it was considered a disorder until a very recent history. And it was considered like a uh, mental so, illness. So the, the argument that you get into, or the trouble you get into with an argument like that, where you say that for as long as, da, 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 okay, great. Yeah, and slavery was perfectly fine with people until it wasn't. The question is, why isn't it now? Right? The, the reason why, slavery was never good, it was just legal. Right? And in this situation, the question is, is what scientific data has been released to actually change the way that we think about this particular incident or, or, or episode? And, and, and again, they'll, and they'll combat the suicide argument with, well, yeah, of course the suicide rate is high because society treats them so bad, ostracizes them, and isolates them. And if you were ostracized and isolated, you'd kill yourself, right? The Americans had a drastically lower um, suicide rate than any like other who African Americans, even when yeah. they were uh, like equal, equal. No, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying their argument's good. Right? I'm saying this is. I'm saying this is what you're going to get hit with, right? And each single time, understand something, right? You're being put in a position where they're defending a victim, and you're persecuting one. That's the nature of the discussion that you've gotten yourself into. All right, so the, the real question here is because the, the, way that, the way that we typically argue about this, we do, we come off looking like, you know, well, they're bad people. Instead of looking at it going like, look, we disagree with something and we think, we think that there's serious health concerns associated with this. All right, it's not that you're a bad person and we're good people. It's that this, this doesn't seem right. The science doesn't seem to back this up. The, the sociological data we have doesn't seem to back this up. I'm happy to look at all the, the additional data. Again, from my, I obviously have a faith component that works into my worldview when I, when I review this data as well. The question that we have to ask ourselves, so from your standpoint, is again, part of the problem that we have is because the government is the one making decisions and because we don't get to extricate ourselves from the government decision, now we all want to come in and have an opinion on it. And, and, we're entitled to one because they're using our money. They're telling us what we got to do. That's why I think in a lot of cases, if you just remove the government from this equation, we, we can't actually live and let live and that we can actually see what works and what doesn't work. And I'm fairly confident on what will work. 
But that's, that's sometimes hard to determine when the government's compelling people to do things that they otherwise shouldn't do. So again, this is why I, I go back to what is, the, what is the peaceful approach to this? And the peaceful approach is like, look, when the government's doing these things, the government has to operate off of, of certain principles or ideas or certain standards of conduct. Right? As much as possible, leave them out of it. Because again, if, if we'll go with education again, if dollars were following the students, would I be happy with a school that was engaging in policies which I think was confusing children? No. Is it my role to step in and play the part of the parent for that particular child? No. So that's an environment where that parent and that child and that teacher and that institution is free to do what they think is best, again, provided they're not engaging in like overt abuse. And then there's other options somewhere else. And then we can see which options work better. That's peaceful, that's voluntary. All right, we, we can't get sucked into the idea that no, it's about telling people what we're gonna do. And, and that's, that's always gonna be the issue because if you, if you do have a student, if you do have, let, let's say, let's assume for a second, we're, we're completely right, and this is gender dysphoria, and this is, this is bad for, for the child mentally. Because again, we're, we're telling them when your psychological reality doesn't comport with your physical reality, it's the physical reality that should change instead of the psychological. And, and the whole practice of psychiatry has been about getting people to believe what is real, not what they prefer. All right, so, so let's, let's assume all that. They're still addressing the issue of, well, then what do you do? Right, do you, do you want the, the girl that thinks she's a boy to go into the boy's bathroom? Or the girl's bathroom? Because either way, you're, you're potentially running into issues there. So okay, th there'll be a separate space. Okay, what does the separate space look? Is there, is there a transgender girl's bathroom, a transgender boy's bathroom? Like, so they're, they're still trying to address the social issue that we're stuck with while we're having this larger debate. Um, that's why, again, I, I go back to this idea of don't, don't concede the underlying issue that, well, of course the government's going to run all of this, and so now this is just a debate on how they're going to do, who, who are they going to force to do what? Right? We should never concede that debate. That doesn't mean that we can't also have the conversation of that, okay, given that we're in the world that we're currently in right now and we've got to navigate that, what is the best way to do it? Um, I, I hope that helps. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, it wouldn't be segregation because, well, okay, here's a, <laughs> I'm going to give you three terms that are commonly used in political discourse that I've grown to hate. Equality, discrimination, and diversity. Let me ask you something. Who here considers themselves to be a tolerant person? Raise your hand. Okay. Who here thinks diversity is a good thing? Okay. Who believes in equality? Okay. Tolerance of what? Diversity of what? Equality of what? <laughs> Who here tolerates rape? Oh, so you're intolerant. <laughs> Who here, if you had a room full of law-abiding, hard-working, ethical people would want to inject a couple of serial killers in order to make the room more diverse? Who would want to do that? Who here thinks that society should treat an elementary school teacher 
the same way we treat a pedophile. Oh, so you don't believe in diversity, tolerance, and equality. Those terms have no moral connotation outside of a larger context, but they are used like they do. The moment you disagree with something, oh, you're for discrimination. You're against tolerance. You're against equality. So segregation. There's two types of segregation. There's government-imposed segregation, and there's voluntary segregation. There's segregation by race, there's segregation by religion, there's segregation by sex, there's segregation by preferences on baseball teams. Are any of you San Francisco Giants fans? Cool, you can all stay. <laughs> any of you Dallas Cowboys fans? Cool, you can all stay. Right? If we're talking about segregation in the sense that the government is gonna come out and compel people to stake with a particular race or another race, that is horrible and racist and wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's bigoted. The fact that you showed up here today to listen to me as opposed to going and doing something else means you discriminated against everything else you could have done instead of coming here. Is there anything wrong with that form of discrimination? No. Now, if you're discriminating against someone because you believe in the inferiority or superiority of another person based off of their race, that's wrong because it's racist, because it's bigoted. And so this is what we constantly see within these political dialogues is the moment you disagree with something, oh, you're discriminating. Everything you do is an act of discrimination. The question is, is what's the motivation behind it? All right. So when we talk about, a school, like for instance, if there was a school, if the government comes in and says, if your child identifies as transgender, they have to go to this school, yeah, I got a problem with that. If a private sector institution says, you know what, we want to have a school that simply caters to this particular group, Maybe it's a school that caters specifically to people that love music and the arts. Choice. Right? Now, it's, it's, it's not that I'm segregating because I hate everybody else. I'm choosing to go into this particular environment because I feel like this is where I can be comfortable, this is where I can be safe, and this is where I can achieve the objectives I have for going to that institution in the first place. And I would argue that on, on some level, that's, we, we just naturally do that. Um, again, if, if you're segregating yourself based off of bigoted intentions or racist intentions or sexist intentions, yeah, that's bad. There's a moral context to go with that. But always beware of this, this fad that we have. Jonah Goldberg wrote a book called The Tyranny of Clichés. And, and I see this all the time. I, I, had a, <laughs> I had a bill before the General Assembly that said that the government could not discriminate against religious organizations because they held to the view that, uh, because they had a religious uh, conviction with respect to what marriage was, specifically between a man or a woman, right? Two consenting adults, male, female. I, what I, I got called and asked, why are you supporting this pro-discrimination bill? I said, well, I see it as an anti-discrimination bill. How could you see it that way? Well, because the government, under Terry McAuliffe, is currently discriminating against this sort of religious organization for this particular belief. I'm telling him he can't do that. So I, I think it's anti-discrimination. Well, but that group is discriminating. And then I finally explained to the reporter, I said, the fact that you picked up the phone and called me is an act of discrimination against everything you could have done with your time today. Does that make you a bad person? No. Okay, well then maybe we're gonna have to define our terms a little bit more specifically. So 
it, it's really important when we look at this. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, and specifically with education, you have some people say the government should not be involved in education at all, right? I, I, I understand the reasoning behind that. I think that's going to be a little bit difficult to achieve. Right, but I, I do think there's a very good argument to be made to say that, okay, if the government is going to be involved, it can be involved without having to administer control and run it. Right? When the government wanted to help hungry people, it didn't open up 10,000 government grocery stores and make you shop at one based off of your address. It handed out a voucher to food and allowed you to go into the marketplace and get the groceries that work best for you and your family. I don't see why we can't do something similar with education. And if we did, it would create an environment where a lot of these battles that we're having with one another, we wouldn't be having because now I'm not compelling you to do something against your faith or against what you think is best for society. You have an option to do what you want. I have an option to do what I want. We'll let the results bear out reality. Yes, sir. So if the Republican Party and conservatives more broadly, are they going to have to, or are we going to have to resolve this tension between, as you're saying, you know, stay out of it versus the other side, kind of, I guess, more popular side saying, no, we need to use the government to fight back against their uses of the government. Are, are we going to have to reconcile that before moving forward? That's the big argument right now. I mean, that's one of the big arguments. I, I don't see that debate. I'm, I'm trying to keep it nonpartisan, right? Okay, I don't see that debate so much happening on the left. The left pretty much assumes that the government is the primary mechanism that we use to solve problems and to organize society. On the right, we typically don't assume that. We assume that society is somewhat naturally occurring through the family, through cooperation within the marketplace, through civic organizations, through the church. Government is something that we establish in order to provide for protection and to perform certain very enumerated, very specific functions. So on the left, there's not really that debate. It might be to what extent or at what given time or how much money you spend, but there's no question that, of course, the government's going to do these things. We're starting to have this problem on more toward the right of the spectrum where it's this idea that, well, it's worked for them, and us sitting on the sideline isn't helping us out, so we might as well use the government to do what we want. And I get very, very concerned about that. That is when you get into very, very dangerous situations. Because if, if, if the, the right is not rooted in the idea of individual liberty, personal responsibility, free markets, property rights, very, very limited government. If that's not what we're rooted in, it's not, it, I will tell you right now, I would leave my party in a heartbeat if I didn't think that was still a core fundamental conviction of it. Even though I get furious with my own party on a day-to-day -day basis with respect to their inability to stand up for it or actually advocate for it in an effective way. But that's, that's why I say a lot of times we get into our little respective tribes and then the tribe becomes everything as opposed to the principle. You want to know what a political party is? It's a tool. And I mean that in the pejorative sense. Right? It's a tool. It's a mechanism for accomplishing something. It is not the end state in and of itself. And what I'm hoping is, is that the, the debate that we're having within you know, one side of this, you know, the, the political spectrum, is going to move more toward that, that view of individual liberty and, and free markets. Now, here's, here's one of the things I think we do wrong. When, the, when some people on the other side debate, it's all about free healthcare, free education, you know, free food, free, I, I don't know, car. I'm not sure what we're giving away for free anymore. A lot of stuff, right? But the, those are all very tangible and they meet very specific needs that people can identify. And then we come on the other side and we're just like, freedom. 
And they say, well, free to what? Free to die because they don't have health care? Free to you know, not get a job because they can't get a good education? Free to be, you know, have my labor exploited by the evil corporate, you know, plutocracy? I, I, so one of the things that we need to remember is that freedom is not an end state in and of itself. Freedom is essentially the ocean we're trying to swim into. It's the environment we're trying to operate in to achieve all the things that freedom allows us to do. And that is about finding purpose, finding meaning. Again, for me as a Christian, it's about glorifying God in my actions and being able to do that in an environment where I'm not repressed or persecuted for doing that. And, and I do think we have to do a better job of talking about the, the sort of environment that we're talking about and the trade-off that we have to accept for this is the only way you're going to get a government small enough to not infringe on those liberties is means it can't be big enough to do everything you want it to do because it can change on you. Once you give power over to the government, it doesn't reside in the hands of the people that you want to have it. It's there for whoever happens to hold political office. And so if, again, if the debate is, we're now going to use the government to do the things that we think are good, we've already lost, because that was never the nature of the debate in the first place. The nature of the argument for us should always be, how do we expand upon individual liberty and free markets? Because, and here's what I think is so beautiful about that. I've been to a lot of countries. Because I went to a lot of those countries when I was in the army, they're not countries you typically want to go to. <laughs> there is nothing as devastating as watching somebody and the glaze in their eyes when they feel like there is absolutely no hope or no escape from the circumstances for which they find themselves or they've been born into. There's not even a notion of freedom. There's not even a notion of this idea that there is some purpose out them, purpose out there for them, God-given purpose for them to go out there and actually be a part of and find meaning in life. It is about bare subsistence and standing out of the way of the authorities that will punish them for stepping out of line. And the destruction and the havoc that that wreaks on the human soul is absolutely heartbreaking. I have a visceral reaction against it whenever I see it. So what we're fighting for are all those moments where somebody was able to meet a challenge and rise up or work with somebody else or find somebody in the pit of despair and bring them up out of genuine love and compassion for their fellow human being. It, it's the invention that was created that never would have been if it would have relied on a bureaucracy somewhere in Washington, D.C. Right? It's, it's the piece of artwork that's created, the piece of music that is created. It's, the, it's all of that that is able to flourish within a free society. And yes, we can't always point to something concrete and say, if you do it, it's this. It's the opportunity to create those things. And I would have hoped that we had enough human history to demonstrate the value of that proposition. But the one thing I have been more and more convinced of and Reagan said it better than anybody, it's that freedom is not passed through to future generations in the bloodstream. It has to be defended. And we all have to make a choice on whether or not we're going to defend it. And, and I will, I'll leave you with this, because I know we're, we're done on time. I had somebody ask me once, they're like, do you think our country is too far gone? When you look at some of the various organizations you know, that were meeting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that didn't want the sort of country that was founded on the sort of principles that we see within our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. They've achieved a lot with respect to the cultural takeover of arts, entertainment, education, media. They've achieved a lot. Because do you think it's already, do you think it's too far gone? And my response back is, 
I've already made up in my own mind that that question doesn't matter to me nearly as much as what I'm going to do about it. So even if it is, even if that is the, the fate, it's not going to change what I do. I decide what I do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to fight for the things that I believe are true and worthy and noble. And when you have a generation, when you have people that believe that, they are convicted, they are totally bought into the idea that they are going to fight no matter what. And I don't mean just fighting in this physical sense or this intellectual sense. They're going to fight through compassion, through love, through genuine caring of other people. When they've made up their mind they're going to do that no matter what, that is where you see a significant and dynamic cultural shift. And there is no piece of legislation. There is no political advocacy that you can do that is a substitute for that genuine conviction when people can actually see the authenticity of it. And so make up your mind that's what you're going to do. There's a lot of people that they think they're going to make up their mind once they're in the bad situation, once they're dealing with the persecution. You make up your mind now. And then when it comes, it doesn't surprise you. You've already made up your mind. And thankfully, God's put me in some unique circumstances where I had to make decisions like that. And I will tell you this. Once you have it, that is also liberating. Because you, you recognize ultimately that what you're here to do is not necessarily gain in power, prestige, or wealth or the accolades of other people. God has given us a mission. It's true, it's noble, it's worth fighting for, it's worth giving up for, and he gave us the perfect example of how we should do it. So go do it. And make up your mind that there is absolutely nothing that's going to prevent you. And as one missionary friend told me, who took his children, his young children, into combat environments in Burma in order to save people he had barely met. And I asked him, how do you do it? And he said, Nick, my family has decided that we're going to be on mission for what God has called us to do. And we will never be motivated or dissuaded by a desire for comfort or a concern for fear. All right. Well, hey, thank you guys very much for being here. Thank you guys for the questions. I, I will leave some cards if you guys do have any questions for me. Um, sorry I did the bait and switch on you there earlier, but I, I was like, ooh, this is a good one. You, Look at that. you, you did you did well. You fight yeah, this, answer. He was that was I think we were about to get into Dylan. I was like, if we do a Dylan roll, is this a home roll question? But no, it was it, it, it was good and every once in a while I like to catch someone off guard because that's how life works. But no, you handled yourself well. So once again, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.